Hi, and welcome back to Unsighted, the internet's least reliable English lit podcast. I'm Chantel. And I'm Amy, but married. And Amy's freaking married now. Oh my god, you're a wife. How's it going? Better than the wife of Bath, honestly. Like, it's going pretty good. <laughs> it's going pretty good. I'm thrilled for you. Yeah, it's fun. It's nice. The wedding was nice. We had good weather. There's a Roman Catholic slash French Canadian old wives tale, close to being an old wife soon. <laughs> Where um, they say that if you put your rosary on the clothesline, you'll have good weather. Stop. So I put three rosaries up the night before to make sure that I would have good weather. And it held out until like basically the moment I took them off before we went to bed. So it was it was a really, really good day. So um, you're like the anti-Kelso. <laughs> well, damn, Jackie, I do control the weather. I do. I do control the weather. It's great. And me and the <laughs> Jesus and the people who have died, we did the thing. It's great. Well, damn, Jesus. Jesus, I do control the weather. Yeah. <laughs> but we had uh, we had a lot of fun. It was really nice. And June got the zoomies during our vows, which is hilarious. That's adorable. Because she never gets the zoomies. Aww. But she was like, my parents are married. Just running around. She was so excited. I was so excited. She was so excited. It was bonkers. <laughs> what are we talking about today? I Me, mean, I'm yielding completely to your suggestion. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about a modest proposal for preventing the children of poor people from being a burden onto their parents or country and for making them beneficial to the public. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Shortened to a modest proposal. Wow, that sounds so proper and like nothing could go wrong. Who wrote that? Anonymous. A not what? Oh, is it? Was it published anonymously? Mm, it's complicated. So like, okay. Sidebar that we're going to put in later or I can repeat myself later, but you need to know this. So it was published by published by Jonathan Swift, but he published anonymously first. Because people knew. Yeah, people knew. Okay. We all know. He like, he took credit for it later, but it was published originally anonymously. Tell me about a modest proposal. Yeah, so published in 1729. So it's been a while, but you know, not that far removed from the last period of time that we had been talking about. So the modest proposal is an essay, which I know sounds boring, but I, let me tell you that it's not. So the first portion of the essay describes the plight of starving beggars in Ireland. So at this time, you may have known, you know, Ireland is the first other of colonial England. They were poor. They were overworked. Their landlords were English. They did not own the land that they had. It was a bad time for the Irish. And then, you know, mass migrations. The Irish are basically why the English invented the concept of whiteness so that they could be something that the Irish were not. Yeah. And we've talked about this before in like, you know, talks about Gulliver's Travels. So you guys are well versed with the Irish. Unless you're new to the show, in which case, welcome. What a <laughs> fun one to start with. Hi, I'm Amy. I'm married. Um... <laughs> so our author here is complaining about how many people are being bored in Ireland. You know, he's like talking about like, he, we have to do something with these 120,000 that are too many being born. Well, let me back up here for a second. We're going to do a content warning because a lot of this essay is gruesome. What? So no. if you have a problem with dead babies, don't listen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Or like women being used. Again, here we are. So the mothers have to like beg for food for their children or like abort them or murder them when they're born because they can't provide for them because they don't make money because they have children and they have to take care of the children so they can't work. It's a bad time. You know, these Irish welfare queens are just having too many kids. Too many kids. It's exactly the same argument that capitalists who hate poor people use now. You know what? It's it's an old argument. It's yikes. Yeah. 
Yeah. My favorite thing about this is that he lays it out in exactly the way that people would like still agree with who hate poor people, where he's like, you know, these Irish pavos just being a burden on society. And all the people who hate pavos are like, yeah, we hate the pavos. Tell us your solution. They're like, ugh. People, poor, having kids, how fucking dare they? Mm -hmm. So, you know, same old, same old. So our dear friend, the author here, proposes that we could do something with all these children. He has an American friend who says that children at one year old are actually pretty tasty. So our friend is considering eating children. Yeah. Yeah. An American friend of his acquaintance in London. Yes. Who says that a young, healthy child, well-nursed, is at a year old, a most delicious, nourishing, and wholesome food, whether stewed, roasted, baked, or boiled. And I make no doubt that it will equally serve in a fricassee or ragu. And that is a proposal that he hopes will not be liable to the least objection. No objections. Seems very tasty. So, you know, we're, uh, we're eating kids. Our author wants us to eat kids. And I mean, he's not necessarily wrong, right? There's so many of them. The moms can keep feeding them for a year. Yeah, thanks for the content warning, because unfortunately, it's dead baby jokes all the way down from here. It's just dead babies. So the idea here that our author has is to keep about 20,000 of them for breeding. Because, you know, if you're going to make them livestock, you kind of have to keep having them. Uh Uh-huh. So he thinks that, you know, a ratio of one man to four women should be more than enough. It's more than we give for sheep. So he thinks that should work. But it doesn't matter because, you know, they're Irish anyways. So like we can do what we want with them. They're basically cattle. So he uh, has this little math equation. I don't know where he gets it from. I think maybe he uh, needs to hit up Census Canada because he's got all these numbers that no one else has. But he suggests that there will be a remaining 100,000 children that can be sold each year to the persons of quality and fortune through the kingdom, the kingdom being England. Yeah, so he's going to sell off about 100,000 of them to the rich English for food, Um, especially landlords who, having already devoured their parents, seem to have the best title to the children. That's a freaking good line. It's a great line. He also, like, he talks about, you know, the Catholic question, the Irish question. They're one and the same. Basically, he says that there are too many Catholic babies being born about nine months after Lent because, you know. I can think of one thing that is not being given up for Lent if that's the case. Well, no, so you would have the sex after the Lent. Right. Gotcha. Yes. Because you give up the sex for the Lent. Mm, I see. Yes. I'm married. (laughs) I could talk about this now. (laughs) So basically, you know, if they have those babies and we keep them away, not only will that, you know, give us plenty of stock for food, lovely, yum, 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 Catholic babies, but also it's going to reduce the amount of Catholics because clearly we're not using them for the breeding program. That's not going to happen. It's just a win-win for everybody. Um, Also, when you're not using them just for food, you can can use their skin for a nice pair of ladies' gloves or perhaps some gentlemen's boots. Yeah, so times are dire, so we have to use all the child. You know, we can't let any part of the child go to waste, so we have to also use their skins and their bones, you know, to make soup and fashion while we're at it. Yeah. So we're going to talk about teenagers for a quick bit because, you know, like, some children are going to go through the cracks. I'm like, do we want to have teenagers? Like, you know, there's, there's ideas here, but they're not a good replacement for using just straight-up children because they don't 
don't replace deer very well. This American friend that we were talking about earlier says that like boys are a bit too lean in their teen years. It's tough. Tough meat. Tough meat. And like the girls are so close to being of breeding age. So close. You might as well just keep them for the babies. Might as well. It's only logical. It would be a waste to use them for food. But there are some bright sides. The first one being that maybe husbands will stop beating their wives because they serve a purpose now, right? You don't want them to lose the baby because then you lose the money. So hopefully that will will help, you know, because the women are bringing home the... I don't know what the human word for bacon is, but that's what they're bringing home. Oh God, they're bringing home the human bacon. They're bringing home the human bacon. This is awful. It is, but it's okay because it's a modest proposal. It's only going to make things better, clearly. You know, we say bringing home the tempeh, but um, that's funny. And that is simply one benefit of the many benefits. We've also got there will be less papists, which are Catholics. Yeah, we talked about that. Poor people will now be able to make enough money to pay their landlords because God knows they have nothing else of value. The nation now won't have to pay for the upkeep of these useless children. They cost a lot to like clothes and feed and educate, bypass all of that. Yeah, the constant breeders who are just popping out kids all the time won't have to care for their kids after the first year. So they'll be freed up for workhouses and whatnot. The best part of having children is being pregnant in that first year. Yeah, everyone says that. That's what I've heard. All my mom friends would agree. It'll improve the cuisine and thus the clientele at taverns. Taverns will have better meat available from babies and all these gentlemen will now be frequenting the taverns for the greatest baby brisket. Imagine a buffalo ear, like a buffalo wing, but it's an ear. No. Pub food. That's the joke. The joke is pub food. And furthermore, mothers will now take better care of their babies because it'll be like a competition where they'll want to bring like the fattest babies to market. Yeah, because he says that babies are already 12 pounders when they come out. (laughs) And by the time they're one, they're probably at least 28. Yeah. So there's going to be a competition of who can have the biggest baby and the biggest toddler. It's going to be great. Isn't this just all so smart and fun? Yeah. And like he, you know, he's thought about other solutions and he goes on and on about various solutions that he just won't hear about. Like he refuses to hear about like teaching landlords to have at least one degree of mercy towards their tenant. Unattainable. We can't even do that. Whoever would bring that up would be a dumbass. It's never going to happen. Never going to happen. Um, He asked politician to ask the people of Ireland if they who would have wanted to be sold and eaten as children to escape, you know, their current plight of poverty, their oppression by the landlords, the impossibility of paying rent without a job, the want of basic sustenance and the thought of making their own children suffer next. You know, this idea of like being born into the curse. So maybe if it is a curse, get eaten while you can't remember any of it. Yeah, birth is a curse and existence is a prison. Wouldn't you rather be a baby brisket? Exactly. Wonderful. We're titling this episode Baby Brisket. (laughs) Oh no. So in the end, you know, our author who has this wonderful modest proposal, it's a delicious proposal. You can season it with salt, but not for too long because the meat won't travel well. The only place it will travel well is probably to England, but, but he does say that bringing the livestock, you know, the children across while they're still alive is probably the best thing to do. Well, yeah, because you want to get them fresh from the butcher. Fresh. Like Shavaka do. Shavaka baby. <laughs> so in the end, you know, our author who has no stake in the game really wants to like explain to us why he doesn't have a stake in the game. Why this comes from a place of purity and of like, you know, just sound logical reason. Logic and intellect. Yes, because his youngest kid is nine years old and his wife is past breeding age. So you know that he can't get anything from the scheme except maybe food, but he's not going to get any money from the scheme. So you know that it's a real winner for somebody <laughs> else. So yeah, that's the modest proposal by Jonathan Swift. And it's a satire. 
about capitalism. And we obviously know that's a satire because we're very familiar with satire in our day and age of the onion and the beaver tip. But this was published in 1729 when satire was a little bit less prominent. And every time something like this came out, people were like, I cannot believe that you convinced me to agree with you that these breeder Irish were just being a burden on society and then came out with this eat babies thing? How dare you? But it's an obvious criticism of, you know, how the English elite dehumanized the Irish poor. And how, like, Ireland was seen as a moneymaker and their people were seen... So there's, like, this whole idea that, like, you know, a country with, like, people is a rich country and, like, you can make a lot of money if you don't pay people and then you become a richer country. So basically, England was, like, trying to do this with Ireland. They were like, there's gonna be a lot of Irish people. We just get to use them. They don't need to make money. We make money. Bada bing, bada boom, everything is fine. And Swift saw that and he was like, wouldn't you make more money if there was less of us? (laughs) So that's fun. And he was Irish. He was Irish. So, like, he talks about this from the perspective of, yeah, my countrymen would have rather have been sold for baby brisket, obviously. Yeah, he talks about this in a way that, like, you know, he really, like, he brings in the idea of, you know, you feel sympathy for the Irish when you're reading this because you're like, oh my god, this is such, like, a bad life that they would think that it's better to sell their babies, right, for food. And you're supposed to hate the narrator. But that, you know, if you don't catch on to the satire of it all beforehand kind of thing, which, as you mentioned, a lot of people didn't. Kind of like a lot of people didn't get the satire behind my recycling jokes. <laughs> Amy also thinks that cannibalism is a good idea. It is, okay? You don't need to recycle paper if you just eat people. Logical. That's a joke for, for, pe- for people who don't understand. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> we should not eat people. We are very firm here at Uncited. We do not eat people. So I thought this might have been written during the Irish potato famine. Mm, that's later. But no, it was written like a century before that even happened. Yeah, it was written in the early days of colonial Ireland. Yeah, so it sucks that it was still relevant like a century later when they were still... The Irish potato famine didn't happen because there weren't enough potatoes. It happened because they were shipping out all the food other than potatoes to England. Like, Ireland was still a moneymaker. And also potatoes. (laughs) They're also shipping out the good potatoes. You know, the ones that didn't have the blight. Yeah, and the potatoes that the Irish were allowed to eat all got a blight and then the Irish starved. Yeah. And then it's still relevant because... Because you could easily use this to satirize like how capitalists talk about poor people. Yeah, which actually another Irish person recently did, kind of. So our good friend Bogman Hosier, <laughs> that's what we call him. Famously. Famously. Who famously came to my city the day after I got married and I'm mad about it. Oh, wow. So I wasn't here to go see it. Oh my god. It's fine. So Hosier has a song that came out a couple months ago, I guess, called Eat Your Young. And it combines theme regarding like anti-war and anti-income equality and you know basically talks about skip the middleman and just like eat your young because that's basically what you're going to have to do in the end i'm going to just read the chorus because that's exactly what it is skip the middleman the chorus is get some pull up the ladder when the flood comes throw enough rope until the legs have swung seven new ways that you can eat your young come and get some skidding the children for a war drum putting food on the table selling bombs and guns 
it's quicker and easier to eat your young. So like he's been asked, you know, like how much of this does it have to do with you know, swift. Because the parallels are there. We can't deno- ignore them. And he said, like, you know, um, there's an interview he did with, I think, thecurrent.org. It's on the TikToks. Ugh. And he talks about how, you know, Swift's essay really talks about the Irish problem, as they were calling it in colonial Ireland. Ireland is still a colonial country, like every other place that England has touched. And, you know, he talks more about, like, you know, there's so much, like, war going on, so much of this, like, rampant capitalism that, like, cut out the middleman, you're destroying the planet, your kids are going to suffer, you might as well eat them. That's basically what's going to happen. Yeah. If the way you're putting food on the table is by destroying the planet, which is going to make it uninhabitable for the next generation and selling weapons that are killing children just cut out the middleman and kill the children yeah basically and that's not what swift was saying really no but the parallels of the children are suffering because of the actions of people who are supposed to make the world a better place for them is there and not like directly the irish parents and like the swift's essay but like you know the landlords are supposed to like provide land for the people to farm big supposed to there big supposed to supposed to is doing a lot of work in that sentence yeah it was incredibly successful like it was very successful at getting people mad at someone who would believe that you should eat irish children and then therefore having to question their own beliefs of well okay so we do think irish people have value then yeah just what kind of value and took a while to get figured out yeah um and he uses you know the literary device of paralipsis which is a rhetorical device wherein the speaker or writer brings up a subject either by denying it or denying that it should be brought up. So like when he talks about how don't even talk to me about these other solutions, that's part of his whole satire spiel. So yeah, that like it's ridiculous to say that the English should be empathetic to the Irish. Yeah. Because how could we ever expect that from them? It's much easier to get them to agree to eat babies than do that. And this part of the essay also like really highlights all the like various problems as to why this is a problem, like why there's so much inequality in Ireland and is attacking, you know, the other people who are doing like legal proposals and stuff with like a cure-all solutions, right? Like, oh, it's just a labor issue or oh, it's just a population issue. Like it's yeah. so much more. And I think to this day, like even like Hozier's song, it's so much more. So Hozier's song is also interesting because it is still very over the top in a way that I think satire is like has a hard time being now. And we have a pre peer review. We have some insight on this from our good friend of the show, James, at Unabashed James on Twitter. So James wrote in, I think satire is very interesting because it kind of has to be over the top. And one of the reasons The Onion and other satirical publications have been having a tough time with presenting differently than fake news is because it has become much harder to make the satire over the top enough to work as satire because satire also relies on shared values. So it's difficult to make satire when you might just be describing someone's belief system yeah i think that comes a lot with like the populist rhetoric that we have right now like you know the trumps of the world yeah everyone's getting like a lot more extremist so like they're banning books in schools that have gay people in them so a satirist might be like well i think we should just burn all the books with gay people in them and then florida can be like 
oh, we're actually already doing that. We did that. It's on video. That's a great idea. Thank you. Uh, yeah, they are doing that. Whoops. Yeah. Um, and I think like part of it also is that like the extremes are so much more extreme. Like before you could have been like, oh, they're banning books. Haha, <laughs> imagine if they banned all books and then you, that wouldn't be a bad headline today, would it? Like it would be a bad headline, but like it, it could happen here. It's just a headline now. It's just a headline. So I think- Which is rough. Satire now almost has to be like, swinging the opposite way and that makes it sad <laughs> what's an example like texas becomes a haven for all lgbtq people like that's absurd you know the absurdism is there in the same way like there's absurdism in satire but it's just sad yeah that is sad like you can't have the same level of satire that we had because like the absurdity is on the other side of the pendulum now because we're so used to crazy bullshit headlines we are so much though that we have newspapers that are specifically dedicated to satire. Well, those were already around. And people still do not realize that they're satire. Oh, yeah. Like, A Modest Proposal was just published in like a regular publication. Yeah. Like if it was like a regular article and then people were like, oh, this stands out as something unusual. People see the headline from The Onion and they're like, I can't believe someone legitimately wrote this. And you're like, it's The Onion. And they're like, what's that? And you're like, God, I hate the world but so meta is beefing with canada right now over us wanting them to pay our journalists for news anyways i'm not going to get into the political factor but the beaverton was coded as news and they were mad about it they were like we are not news we are a satirical newspaper and they wrote this whole like opinion piece letter to mark and company to basically like tell them how dare you deface this publication by <laughs> calling us news right but at the same time like their AI isn't at the perception that we are yet because there's another publication in Canada whose name I'm not going to like even mention because I don't want people to like attack us that wasn't coded as news right away even though it's a very like prominent right-wing quote-unquote news publication they weren't coded as news because I guess their AI generation of their like data bank of what is news in Canada didn't fucking pick it up they were like this is too outrageous this is too outrageous surely no one would say something <laughs> outrageous like that gay people are pedophiles surely that would not happen and then yesterday there were a bunch of protests where people were calling gay people pedophiles this is a turf unfriendly podcast by the way if you are not supportive of people of all identities you're gonna have a bad time if you've made it this far if you've made it this far the door is right there please <laughs> take it and i guess you know we live in a very absurd world right now where like one of the reasons that i wanted to get right into the modest proposal is because i wanted to get people's honest reactions to it because when i read it i didn't know it was a satire i also didn't know it was a satire but i really look forward to many future generations of high school essays that are assigned blind and the kids don't do any research and they all come in like i think this narrator is a bad person and we actually shouldn't eat irish children i remember i was in like one of my friend's dorm rooms when i was reading it she was doing her halloween costume that year and i was just like what eating people and like i hadn't done any swift i wasn't like i think i was in first year and i was in a second year course and i had i knew nothing about jonathan swift this is the first thing i ever read of him and i was like who is this guy oh my god i hate him so much and my marginalia is just like me being like what the fuck 
<laughs> but it's so well written and it's so poignant and it's so like it's so absurd that once I figured out it was satire I was like oh my god this is genius it's very successful as satire because it's a very believable persuasive piece of writing like yeah it's not persuasive because you're not persuaded but it's believable as like something that someone would write as a persuasive essay yeah and I think you know they just don't make them like that anymore <laughs> um actually there's a really good piece of satire from the onion called the amicus curiae which is like a legal document that they submitted and it's like really long and here's the intro ready yeah the onion is the world's leading news publication offering highly acclaimed universally revered coverage of breaking national international and local news events rising from its humble beginnings as a print newspaper in 1756 the onion now enjoys a daily readership of 4.3 trillion and has grown into the single most powerful and influential organization in human history. I mean, it's up there. <laughs> it's pretty good. Pretty good. Good stuff. I especially like the uh, daily readership of 4.3 trillion. I really liked the local news. I would love to know to which locale. America. <laughs> It's arguing that parody is a real thing. Yep. Here are the arguments. Parody functions by tricking people into thinking that it is real. Hmm. Because parody mimics the real thing, it has the unique capacity to critique the real thing. A reasonable reader does not need a disclaimer to know that parody is parody. It should be obvious that parodists cannot be prosecuted for telling a joke with a straight face. Yeah, but you know, that's a modest proposal. I could have done a better job at it, but you know what? I just got married. <laughs> so here we are. And I guess, you know, I think, Chantel and I really want to put out there that we, as people, we went to like a very liberal arts school. We had a very liberal arts education. And with that, for us, at the very least, came learning about everything. Learning about different perspectives and seeing them from every side. And our school was very open about the possibility that like, you know, you were allowed to be who you wanted to be. That is, you know, that is a thing that our school was very open and firm about in its existence. Yeah. And Chantel and I are also of that like ideology that, you know, people are allowed to exist, whether they like be man, woman, non-binary, agender, transgender, something else entirely. It's up to them. Yeah. This may come as a shock to people, but I am a member of the queer community and we were at a school where that was super common. And I was very privileged to be in a place where I was pretty much universally accepted for who I was. And a lot of people don't have that opportunity. And still, I need to be learning and unlearning things because we all have biases. And like unconscious bias are part of like human existence. And there's nothing we can do about it except unlearn them and acknowledge that we have them. And thank people for calling us in. Uh, we're not ever going to be one of those podcasts who get defensive if you call us in for saying something out of pocket. Yeah, um, that's why we have the peer review. Send us messages tell us what you think but you know we want to make sure that the space that we hold here in this tiny little podcast community is safe for everyone because we have both been you know a part of like safe communities before and we know how important it is and uh you know you're free to be who you are with us and on that note do you have a rating scale for us on those eating baby essays and songs yeah so um on a scale of baby tripe to, you know, baby filet mignon. Jesus. How would you rate this essay? Oh my god. This is the wrong rating scale to give the vegan of the show. <laughs> it's fine. I would rate this a 
nice, juicy roasted Brussels sprouts. Roasted Brussels sprouts is the best. Oh, I know. Are you I, kidding me? It's been a hyperfixation food for over a year. They're so good. They're, so they're like crispy on the outside. They're sweet on the inside. They're tender. They yeah. are delicious. They're genetically modified. They are genetically modified as hell. Okay, here's my thing. Satire is the genetic modification of writing. Let me explain. I'm on board. Because you start, you start with a piece of literature, right? You're like, this is a regular piece of literature that I'm going to be reading. And then you realize that someone has taken it and twisted it and made it into something different. And you're like, hmm, this is actually more interesting than it could have been otherwise. And Brussels sprouts used to be crap in the 80s and 90s. So I hear I wasn't really around. But they used to be very bitter. Yeah, apparently they used to be like sad and bitter. And they got genetically modified the crap out of them. Through like regular pollination, like they crossbred it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not lab. It's like evolution. I just think that people don't really know what genetic modification is. Yeah. Genetic modification is just like selective breeding of plants. Yeah. Nobody's putting microchips in your Brussels sprouts. Yeah, relax. They're like sweet and they're delicious and it's like eating vegetable candy. So I really like this essay. I think that it is interesting. I think that it is a fun thing to give people who don't know what it is to read so that they can get offended about it if they don't realize that it's satire right away. And I think if you hand people a plate of Brussels sprouts, they might be like, what is this? And then they have it and they realize that it actually is really good. Furthermore, I went to Cuba on a teaching practicum and they had ungenetically modified fruit and everyone was like, oh, the fruit there is so good. You're going to love it so much because it's not genetically modified. It's just like pure fruit. And then you get there and the pineapple, which I'm allergic to and I didn't know this yet, but like here the pineapple is like yellow and juicy and there the pineapple is like white and dry. And here the watermelon is like red and juicy and you can get like seedless watermelon and there it's like almost all white and like almost exclusively those big black seeds. And I'm like, why would you tell me to eat this fruit? This fruit doesn't taste like anything. They're like, it's good because it's not genetically modified. I'm like, I think you don't know what genetic modification is if you think this is good. I'm sure there are other fruit that are very, very tasty. Maybe you were just in the wrong season also. Like, I know that bananas aren't as good as they used to be, but I think that's just because of the banana plague that killed all the breeds of banana except this one that we eat now. So it killed on the Gros Michel and now we only have the Cavendish. Thank you for that piece of information. The Gros Michel is what you think about when you think about banana penicillin. Yes, which is the best flavor. Um, and it's the flavor that you can get in like banana candy and banana slushies as well. I was a sick kid. Artificial banana is the best flavor. It's not even artificial. It's real, but it's no longer existing. But it is artificial now, isn't it? Mm. They're not going and like sucking it out of this extinct banana that they've preserved in the Jurassic Park. The banana Jurassic. Park. <laughs> I mean, there are also like other bananas, but the commercial ones that we have are the Cavendish for the people who are going to be pissy about it. Well, that was a really fun fact with Amy. Facts with Amy. Do you have any further plugs or anything? Um, No, but you can reach us for any reason, whether you need somebody to talk to or you want to bitch about things or you have a peer review at Unsighted Pod on Twitter, which sometimes is called X, but like it's dead. So don't even go there. Threads and Instagram. And we hope to see you in two weeks. And as always, we're excited. Unavailable. Thank you.
Well, I have completely yielded to your suggestion today because you wanted to talk about this work by an Irish writer that's satirizing the dehumanization of people and profiteering at their expense by making like a satirical suggestion to eat children. Sorry, two works that are that. Um, We're talking about A Modest Proposal by Jonathan Swift. So you're going to cut all of that out because we're going to go in blind. Eat Your Young by Hozier. Good. Cool. Fine. 